Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, so I'm on a tour bus with Dave Wakeling of The English Beat. 30-some years after the band was formed, he's still on the road playing ska songs from the late 70s and early 80s to several generations of fans. Three decades of this stuff. For us, it followed straight after punk. And then in the 90s, it followed a time where music had got kind of angry. And then if you just stay angry and angry and angry, it just gets boring. So you still uh, may have stuff that you want to protest against in life generally. Uh, But you want to be able to be exuberant rather than angry. Scar fits the bill fantastic for that because it's upbeat but you can sing stuff that might be, you know, social commentary. And that's part of the tradition, whether it comes from reggae or from the specials or, you know, any of the various forms of scar, it tends to mix up. Upbeat uh, vibe, so from a distance you go, oh, that's nice, what's that then? And your ears cock up and you want to start moving and then it's somebody singing about unemployment. (laughs) (laughs) This conversation got me thinking, how many of today's ska fans, and there were millions upon millions of them all over the world, realize how deep and how rich and how complicated the history of this music really is? I think it's time to check it out. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. The English Beat from 1980 with Mirror in the Bathroom, their very first hit single, and one of the classics of the great ska revival of the late 1970s and early 1980s. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and people have been asking for a show on the history of ska for a long time, so, all right. I'd hope to keep it brief, but that's impossible. So we're going to turn this into a two-parter. Why? Well, because ska is such an integral part of the landscape of modern rock. I mean, just think of all the ska punk bands that are out there today. And while ska goes in and out of style in some quarters, it has been impossible to kill. The skanking has never stopped from the moment it started. And it started a long, long time ago. Like the sea lapping on a Caribbean beach, ska has come at us in waves. And the very first one rolled ashore in the 1950s. Yeah, the 50s. First, let's define what we're talking about. Ska is a choppy, staccato form of pop music. It's in 4-4 time, where the beat is emphasized on the second and fourth beats of each bar, while the guitar hits on the first, third, and sometimes the fourth beat. Arrangements often feature brass instruments like trombones and saxophones. And the bass line is important, too. That means the notes played on the bass are usually steady quarter notes along a scale or something similar, and the result is a distinctive and very infectiously danceable sound. Ska was born in Jamaica in the years following World War II. Being a British colony, various types of Western European music were introduced into the country, while at the same time, big band, Dixieland, jazz, blues, and R&B were heard over both shortwave radio and the big AM radio signals from places like New Orleans. 
Others picked up these sounds from American military personnel stationed in Jamaica and various other places around the Caribbean. Those sounds were mixed with Caribbean rhythms like Calypso, which came out of Trinidad and Tobago and descended from, believe it or not, a form of French music that was co-opted by African slaves working on the plantations, and Mento music, a form of Jamaican folk music based on traditional sounds that came with the slaves from Africa. Both sounds date back hundreds of years. So, we have Dixieland, we have jazz, blues, R&B, Calypso, and Mento. This musical stew became known as Shuffle and was often heard on Jamaican national radio throughout the late 1950s and into the early 1960s. This new sound proved to be pretty popular, especially with people like soldiers returning to the U.S. They wanted to take records home with them, so a number of entrepreneurial artists got into the business of recording and manufacturing and selling and broadcasting these Shuffle records. Clement Coxon Dodd was one of those broadcasters. By the late 1950s, he was recording local proto-ska bands in his own recording studio. The big change came in 1962 when one of these musicians-slash-entrepreneurs, a guy named Cecil Bustamante Campbell, changed the beat. Together with Jerry Ja, his guitarist, Cecil moved the beat emphasis from the one and the three to the two and the four. In other words, the offbeat was stressed. This change in syncopation was the spark, and ska was born. And it got help from an interesting political development. The appearance of ska coincided with Jamaica's political independence. Ska became the semi-official sound of this new country. Ska fans know Cecil Bustamante Campbell by his stage name, Prince Buster. And this was a huge hit for him in 1967. Some ska from the first wave. Prince Buster and Al Capone. So why do we call this music ska anyway? Well, the origins of the word ska are a little murky. Some people believe that it was taken from the sound of the choppy click on the guitar, like scat, scat, scat. Maybe it was a Jamaican musician named Cluett Johnson, who liked to use a made-up word. He used to say skavuvi all the time. Maybe it was Byron Lee, leader of a band called the Dragonairs. Or maybe it was invented by Jamaica's most popular studio band of the 1960s. Don Drummond was a trombone player who liked to emphasize that instrument in his recordings. He also gave the music a slightly darker feel. And at first, he called his group the Satellites. But then that was changed for some reason to the Scatolites. The Scatolites played on virtually every record made in Jamaica between 1963 and 1967. They were essentially the equivalent of the studio bands used by Motown and Stax Records in America. And in the process, their choppy sound became hugely influential. Unfortunately, Don Drummond never saw what became of his invention. In 1964, he murdered his girlfriend and then died in an insane asylum in 1969. Some say it was natural causes. Others say he was murdered by gangsters seeking to avenge his girlfriend's death. Yet others will say it was all a government plot to kill off the powerful and influential Jamaican music scene. So take your pick. Desmond Decker is another name to remember from the first wave of ska. He used to work in a Jamaican welding shop along a kid from St. Anne's Parish named Bob Marley. Decker became Jamaica's top singer of the 1960s, and thanks to a label called Island Records, a company run by an Englishman named Chris Blackwell who was in love with the music of the Caribbean, Decker scored Ska's first worldwide hit in 1969. Get up in the morning slaving for bread, sir, so that every mouth can be fed more. 
Ska was the dominant music of Jamaica through the mid-1960s. In fact, dancing to it was the national dance for several years. They called the dance skanking. You bend your knees and you run in place. You make fists, bend the elbows, punch and step to the beat. That's skanking. And ska began to spread internationally, thanks to a guy named Sir Alfred da Costa. Now, I have no idea if this guy was any kind of a music fan or if he had ever even heard a single ska record in his life. He was more concerned about that weird red soil of Jamaica. In that soil is bauxite. And without bauxite, you can't produce aluminum. And I don't need to tell you how important aluminum is to our world. By 1957, thanks to da Costa's investments, Jamaica was the number one producer of bauxite on the planet. By the early 1960s, tens of millions of dollars of foreign investment was flowing into Jamaica so that more and more bauxite could be dug out of the ground. This played a role in Jamaica's desire and ability to stop being a colony of Britain and a country of their own. Selling their land to the bauxite miners, more and more young people moved from the country to the cities. But because they were unskilled, the jobs they got in the cities weren't very good, and they settled in ghettos like Trenchtown. Poverty equaled political unrest, and some of that unrest manifested itself in music. Eventually, a new group of alienated, unemployed, and impoverished music fans called Rude Boys emerged from the ghettos of Kingston and Montego Bay. Guys who ran dances, using their big sound systems, often hired Rude Boy gangs to crash the events set up by their rivals. The music slowed down and became more menacing, becoming somewhat similar to gangster rap of the 1990s. They called it rock steady and later reggae. So there's the answer to a question I get a lot. What came first, reggae or ska? Well, it's ska. The emergence of reggae brought the first wave of ska to an end by 1969. But ska was not dead. It was just resting. And because of aluminum production and some interesting immigration policies, it would return. This is a brief history of ska. And right now we're in Jamaica in the 1960s. The country has achieved independence. And the cities are now almost overflowing with people who either sold off their land or were moved off their land in the country because of the rise in bauxite mining for aluminum production. Now, these people did have a choice. They could tough it out in Jamaica or take advantage of an offer by the UK. Starting in 1948, Britain said, hey, all you colonials, you have the right to live with us. You see, the UK was still suffering from a post-war labor shortage, and many Jamaicans, anxious to escape poverty and political uncertainty, moved to the UK, where they became part of the British working class. Naturally, they brought their culture with them, and that included ska. This led to the inevitable mixing of cultures in cities like Brixton and Coventry. Now, let's talk about Coventry. This is an industrial city in central England that became home to many Jamaican immigrants and their ska, which the locals called Blue Beat. Blue Beat existed alongside Northern Soul, R&B, reggae, as well as the music of some of the youth movements like mods and rockers and teddy boys. Of these, the mods were the most important. They were huge fans of R&B and Soul and Blue Beat, ska, and it was co-opted into their universe. Then came punk rock. In the early days of punk, there were bands and fans, but no records. If you went to a club where punks hung out, the music played by the DJ was a mix of many things, including soul and R&B and reggae and ska. One of those DJs was Don Letts, later an associate of The Clash and a member of Big Audio Dynamite. Well, and let's go back to, what, would it be 76 or 77 when you were the DJ at the Roxy? It was 76 into 77. And, there, and that's where I played 
you know, just reggae, which a lot of people thought was a bit strange. But the punks really dug, what did they dig? They kind of dug the musical reportage quality of the songs, the fact that the songs were about something. You know, the Clash with, and the Pistols were singing, um, what was it, Anarchy in the UK. The Clash was singing London's Burning in Jamaica. We were chant, chanting down Babylon. You know, um, so they picked up on the musical reportage quality of the songs, the obvious anti-establishment stance. They loved the bass lines, and uh, they didn't mind the weed either. It has to be said. <laughs> they were like-minded spirits, you know, they were kind of rebels, certainly on the streets of London, that were thrown together as outsiders. These older sounds were mixed with the new do-it-yourself attitude of punk, and there were a few people who really figured out what to do with it. Jerry Dammers lived in Coventry, one of those places filled with Jamaican immigrants. He was a huge fan of all this music, plus he was very much into the freedom of expression that came with the punk movement of the 1970s. He was also the son of a minister, so this music was his way of rebelling against the way he was brought up and against the bleak working-class existence of Coventry. He formed a group that was a little more reggae and a little more soulful than punk, and it came with a uniform, a look that was a cross between a West Indian rude boy, a British skinhead, and a British mod. This meant suits, pork pie hats, dark glasses, and white shirts. Jerry's band eventually became known as The Specials, and thanks to them, we can now start talking about the second wave of ska. And it started with an actual sample from that old Prince Buster song that we heard earlier. The Specials with Gangsters, their first ever single and the first single from the second wave of Ska. In March 1979, The Specials borrowed 700 pounds from family and friends to form an independent record label that Jerry Dammers called Two-Tone after the black and white suits worn by mods and skinheads of the 1960s and after the peaceful multiracial makeup of the band. Gangsters was the first Two-Tone single and a fine example of cooperation. The Specials only had enough money to record the A-side, so the B-side was offered to a friend named Neil Davis, another big ska fan. Davis had a tape of an instrumental he had recorded with his brother-in-law in his living room back in 1977. The tape was just sitting around with nowhere to go, so Jerry Dammers took the track, remixed it, and included it on the B-side of the special single. The name of the song was The Selector, and that also became the name of the band. The Selector from The Selector, although when that song was released, no such band existed. But that shared 7-inch single was also the beginning of what became known as the post-punk ska revival. It was faster and tighter than most of the traditional ska, and there was a greater reliance on horn sections. It was an infectious sound, and soon there was a whole lot of skanking going on. After a shaky beginning, Two-Tone became the core of the second wave of ska. The label even had a snazzy logo, a Jerry Dammers drawing based on a picture of Peter Tosh when he was a member of the Whalers. It was a man in a black and white suit, white shirt, black tie, sunglasses, pork pie hat, white socks, and black loafers. He even had a name, Walt Jabsko. Walt after Walt Disney. This image was also meant to promote racial unity. This was a powerful message at the time when racial tensions were getting out of control in the UK, and they set out with an anti-racism message. Within a month of the release of that first two-tone single, the specials had attracted a substantial cult following and were suddenly playing some of the bigger clubs alongside punk groups like The Damned and The Gang of Four. 
Those early shows were very important because it was the first exposure many punk fans had to ska. Larger record labels also began to take notice. After considering a series of offers, Dammer struck a deal that allowed him to keep the label and to keep creative control, but he also got greater distribution. Once that deal was struck, Two-Tone signed up a North London group and their nutty sound, a loose blend of punk and traditional Jamaican ska. In fact, the group took their name from an old Prince Buster song called Madness. Buster, he sold the heat With a rock steady beat The second wave of ska built very quickly, thanks in large part to two-tone records. The label churned out releases from The Specials and Madness and The Selector and The Body Snatchers. And Two-Tone also issued the first singles from a group that featured Prince Buster's old saxophone player. And they were called The Beat. Tone acts were the most visible of the second wave of ska bands, although they weren't the only ones into this music. There was The Employees, The Piranhas, Ska City Rockers, The Tigers, Bad Manners. Ska bands also started turning up in other parts of the world. For example, Her Majesty's Secret Service and The Untouchables were American. Second wave ska was vibrant, full of life, and carried a hopeful message. It was a positive alternative to the hard economic times and the racial riots that were plaguing Britain in the early 1980s. Like I said earlier, there was an extricable link between ska and race. While the racist National Front Organization was attempting to recruit alienated young people, ska groups with their messages of racial harmony were trying to hold it all together. But it was a losing battle. The talent pool became diluted and the music started to become stale. The British music press soon tired of ska and moved on to the next trend. And despite the music's best efforts, violence began to break out at previously racially harmonious ska shows. The scene imploded almost as quickly as it exploded. Here's Dave Wakeling of the English Beat talking about the end of the second wave of ska. Now, when you started this in 78 with everybody else that was in the band, you couldn't possibly imagine that you would keep going beyond 83. I mean, ska at that point, I guess yes. the British music press had decided that... That's it, New Romantics was in, yeah. we were out. Utilitarian furniture was out. By the mid-1980s, Jerry Dammers was broke, and Two-Tone was falling apart under the burden of a huge debt. And while groups such as The Clash and The Beat and Bad Matters did their best to keep it going, it just wasn't the same, and the second wave of ska came to an end by 1985. But ska was not dead. The Beat was kept alive by groups such as The Toasters and Bim Scala Bim and The Uptones and an L.A. punk-funk fusion outfit called Fishbone. Ska laid low for the latter part of the 1980s, kept alive in small pockets in cities around the world. But it was not on life support. Ska was just gathering strength for a comeback, and the coming third wave would be the biggest of all. Ska's third wave began to gather strength in the late 1980s, and this revival was rooted on both the East and West Coasts of the United States. First, the East Coast. That's where Boston's Mighty Mighty Boss Tones were doing their thing. They were formed in 1983. 
They liked the two-tone ska, thought it was good, but this band also had a hard rock background. Members were into ACDC, Stiff Little Fingers, Social Distortion, and even Motorhead. They played throughout New England a lot in the middle 80s before finding an indie label called Tang to release their material. This is called Hope I Never Lose My Wallet. Money Money Boston's with Hope I Never Lose My Wallet. That's what was happening on the East Coast. In California, Fishbone kept ska alive through the middle 80s, playing sweaty, sold-out club shows and releasing several records that became cult hits. Then there was something going on in the Bay Area, and it seemed to have started with a group called The Uptones in 1981. This was a band made up of a bunch of 15- and 16-year-olds fascinated by the two-tone sound, and they sounded like this. The Uptones with Get Out of My Way. They played tons of shows around the Bay Area for the next seven years, and in the process, they inspired other groups to try the same thing. But this next generation of groups added something more to the mix. Hardcore punk rock. And this was the secret sauce that set things up for what would be the third wave of ska. So, let's review. Ska comes out of Jamaica in the 1950s. It spins off reggae in the 1960s and through waves of immigration across the Atlantic latches on to a specific portion of the punk rock scene in the UK. But then it sort of dies away as the British music media gets distracted by new things like rockabilly and the synthesizers of the new romantic movement. From there, it falls to the Americans to keep ska happening and American bands start to inject ska with DNA from rock and hardcore punk. Slowly, that new mutation began to take hold, setting the stage for what would become Ska's third wave. And that third wave was the biggest of them all, which is why we need to spend an entire show on just it. That's next time on A Not-So-Brief History of Ska. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.